afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here to defend and to promote public education. People sometimes regard it as um, free, secular and compulsory or universal. But we're very interested today in our press release in the secular bit. And we're going to take you in our press release 1006 over to America, where they have these strange public schools called charter schools that are paid for by the public, but actually are for private profit. They were started uh, by the GOP and Mr Trump loves them, of course, but remember that Mr Obama sent his children to a charter school in uh, Washington, so they are a worry. But now there's the question of charter schools also being religious schools, and this is a question of separation of church and state. And here we have the uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State getting together with others, secular and other, even religious people, to question charter schools being also religious schools and getting public money. Over to Kim with our press release 1006. Thank you, Jean. This is press release 1006 titled Legal Challenge to Religious Charter Schools in the USA. Faith leaders, education advocates and parents seek to join Oklahoma Attorney General's lawsuit opposing operation of a religious public charter school. In America, charter schools are publicly funded schools run, often for profit, by private organisations. Nevertheless, they are generally open to all children and do not have any religious affiliation. But this is changing. A precedent for a religious charter school is being set in Oklahoma. However, a group of faith leaders, public education advocates and public school parents who are among the plaintiffs in a lawsuit filed on July 31st, 2023 to stop Oklahoma from sponsoring and funding the nation's first religious public charter school are seeking to join a similar lawsuit recently filed by Oklahoma Attorney General Gentner Drummond. The organisations representing the plaintiffs, American United for Separation of Church and State, the American Civil Liberties Union, Education Law Centre and Freedom from Religion Foundation, released the following statement, quote, Oklahoma's public schools must remain free from discrimination and religious indoctrination. We applaud and appreciate Attorney General Drummond's efforts to protect public education and the separation of church and state in Oklahoma. We look forward to continuing our long-standing defense of these core American values. Our client's proposed intervention would benefit the Attorney General's lawsuit because they are among the people. Parents, students, families, educators, clergy, taxpayers, and a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation who will suffer if a religious public school is permitted to open. They and their children will be excluded by the school's discriminatory practices. They will be taxed by the government and forced to financially support a religion that many of them do not share. Their interests and diverse perspectives are valuable and will help the Oklahoma Supreme Court reach a just outcome. The legal team representing these individuals includes the nation's top religious freedom, church-state separation and education rights lawyers. These litigators have a breadth of knowledge, experience and expertise that will add to the Oklahoma Supreme Court's understanding of the issues and arguments in this case. Our joining in the lawsuit makes sense. The law is clear. Charter schools are public schools that must be secular and serve all students. St Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual Charter Schools plans to discriminate against students, families and staff and indoctrinate students into one religion. Allowing a religious public charter school like St Isidore to operate would be a sea change for our democracy. End quote.
some background information. On October 20, 2023, Oklahoma Attorney General Gentina Drummond filed a lawsuit against the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board and its members to undo the unlawful sponsorship of St. Isidore of Seville Virtual Charter School. The board approved the religious public charter school contrary to an opinion issued by Drummond's office, which explained that it would be unconstitutional. A.G. Drummond filed his lawsuit directly with the Supreme Court of Oklahoma. On July 31, 2023, AU, the ACLU and ELC and FFRF, supported by Oklahoma-based counsel Odom and Sparks PLLC and J. Douglas Mann, filed a lawsuit, OKPLAC Inc. versus Statewide Virtual Charter School Board, on behalf of a group of faith leaders, public school parents and public education advocates who object to their tax dollars funding a public charter school that will discriminate against students and families based on their religion and LGBTQ plus status, fail to adequately serve students with disabilities, and indoctrinate students into one religion. The lawsuit charges that the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board violated the Oklahoma Constitution, the Oklahoma Charter Schools Act, and the board's own regulations when it approved St Isidore's application for charter school sponsorship on June 5th, 2023, the progress of this case will be watched with interest. Back to you, Jean. Well, many thanks, Kim. Uh, we'll have a bit of a break now, but before we do, we'd like to remind you that you can see that press release at our website, www.adogs.info. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. We hope you're still listening to the Council for the Defence of Government Schools, the DOGS program, because uh, you might remember last week we mentioned how the Productivity Commission uh, was recommending uh, that uh, religious schools shouldn't get uh, taxation breaks, particularly for building projects. But Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools has uh, really looked at this and written a fabulous press release, which Dale is now going to read us. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article from Trevor Cobold from Save Our Schools, our old friend. Uh, the Productivity Commission should recommend ending tax deductibility for all donations to private schools. So the Productivity Commission has recommended that school building funds no longer be eligible for tax de- deductible donations. It should go further and end tax deductibility for all donations to private schools which are primarily benefiting the richest schools in the nation. In its draft report on philanthropy, the Commission made a compelling case to end the tax concession for school building funds. It said there is no rationale for the concession and that the benefits accrue to individuals connected with the schools rather than providing community-wide benefits. This finding applies just as much to other tax-deductible funds operated by private schools, but the Commission failed to apply its principled approach consistently by recommending ending tax deductibility for all donations to private schools. It should do so in its final report. 
The draft report is a damning indictment of the misuse and inequity of the deductible gift recipient, the DGR system for school building funds, which are predominantly operated by private schools. The potential for donors to be able to convert a tax-deductible donation into a private benefit is especially apparent for primary and secondary education activities, particularly where students are charged fees. While such donations undoubtedly provide benefits, the likelihood that they generate broader community-wide benefits is reduced. Potential donors are most likely to be those directly involved with the organisation, such as students, their parents or alumni. This could lead to tax-deductible donations being directly converted into lower fees. Further, the Commission considers that government support for school building funds through the DGR system is no longer an effective or efficient mechanism for delivering government support to the areas of greatest need and that current arrangements do not obviously align with the broader objectives and priorities of the education funding system. Government support through DGR eligible school building funds is currently not prioritised according to a systemic assessment of the need for the funding between different schools. The level of indirect government support through DGR eligible donations is instead determined by the contributions made by donors and the projects that these donors wish to support in particular school communities rather than through an education education system-wide process of assessment and prioritisation of infrastructure needs and priorities. It said that excluding these school building funds from DGR status would refocus taxpayer support towards other activities that are likely to have a greater community-wide benefit. The DGR system is designed to provide tax incentives for donations to eligible charitable organisations. School building funds are currently eligible for such tax concession and they account for a high proportion of entities with DGR status. The Commission estimated that there are about 3,500 charities in the religious or education category that have DGR status for school building funds. Total donations to these charities are almost $800 million in 2021. The donations were heavily concentrated in a small number of these charities, with 10% receiving about 80% of total donations. The Commission observed that these figures suggest that schools servicing communities with greater socioeconomic advantage are more likely to benefit from DGR status for school building funds. Donation to school building funds are a lucrative source of income for high-fee, exclusive private schools. For example, 50 of the most exclusive private schools in Australia raked in $461 million in donations over the period 2017 to 2021, an average of $92 million a year. The large part of this was through school building funds. 
In 2021, these schools also received $539 million in government, Commonwealth and state territory recurrent funding. Tax deductibility for donations to building funds is used by private, rich private schools to support an arms race in ornate facilities. For example, it contributed to the notorious $29 million library at Scots College in Sydney that resembles a Scottish castle and Cranbrook's recent $120 million building spree on an aquatic centre, theatre and underground car park. These donations are a major source of inequity in school funding. They are ignored in assessing the financial need of private schools for government funding. They add to the huge resource advantage of these schools. They are a stark contradiction of the Gonski principle of funding schools according to need. The Productivity Commission also noted that it is a common practice of schools to include voluntary contributions to school building funds on fee invoices alongside tuition fees. It's said this is evidence that the benefits are private rather than community-wide. Such direct solicitation for donations from the people who are also charged fees is strongly indicative that the main beneficiaries from an organisation's service are likely to be the individual recipients of the service and that any broader community-wide benefits are likely to be incidental. The Commission said that tax deductibility for donations to school building funds have outlived their usefulness. Tax deductible status for school building funds was introduced in 1954 when there was little government support for private schools and uncertainty about the constitutional basis for Australian government involvement in education. Since then, government support for private schools has expanded considerably. In contrast to the situation when the DGR system was introduced, private schools now receive extensive government recurrent and capital funding. In addition to government subsidised donations, private schools also receive a range of tax concessions from Australian, state, territory and local governments. This includes fringe benefit tax exemptions and partial rebates, income tax exemption, franking credit refunds, GST concessions, land tax exemptions, stamp duty exemptions, payroll tax exemptions and rates exemptions. These exemptions are a form of indirect government support for private schools. The draft report said this change of circumstance is cause for a reassessment of the need for school building funds to have DGR status. Providing indirect government support through school building funds means government funding is not prioritised according to a systemic assessment of the infrastructure needs of different schools. The Commission found that the current DGR system is not fit for purpose. The arrangements that determine which entities can access DGR status are poorly designed overly complex and have no coherent policy rationale. This creates inefficient 
inconsistent and unfair outcomes for charities, donors and the community. Indeed, one academic study has called it a dog's breakfast. The Commission recommended that it should be reformed to direct support to where there is likely to be the greatest net benefits to the community. The Commission proposed a comprehensive overhaul of the DGR system applying a principles-based framework to assess and improve the DGR system. It proposed that eligibility for DGR status should be based on the following principles. The activity is expected to generate net community-wide benefits that would otherwise likely be undersupplied by the market. The activity improves access to goods and services, including for people on lower incomes, in line with general government objectives for a more equitable society. Providing government support for the activity through tax-deductible donations generates broader net community benefits than provided by other government funding mechanisms, such as grants. The activity is unlikely to create a material risk that tax-deductible donations can be converted to private benefits for donors. Any private benefits need to be sufficiently low or incidental to the act of donating relative to the benefit available to non-donors. These risks may be heightened for the act for activities for which there is likely to be a close nexus between donors and intended beneficiaries. It said that charities whose activities do not align with these principles should be excluded from the DGR system. It found that primary, secondary, religious and informal education did not meet these principles and should be excluded in the future. It found there is no coherent policy rationale for why these activities are eligible for DGR status. The Commission said that it's difficult to justify DGR status for school building funds under the above principles. The draft report said that an exception should be made for education activities that have explicit equity objectives. All activities undertaken by charities registered as public benevolent institutions should remain eligible for DGR status because they provide services to groups of people that are in need. For example, many private schools in remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities currently have DGR endorsement as a result of registration as a public benevolent institution and this would remain the case under the Commission's proposed reforms. Exclusion from DGR would apply to public schools as well but few public schools have DGR status and their income from building funds is relatively small. However, the DGR system presents similar equity failures in the public system as with private schools, albeit on a smaller scale. It means that funding is not prioritised according to assessment of need. It is likely that public schools in more advanced 
disadvantaged areas attract more donations for building funds than schools in disadvantaged areas. Inadequate facilities are a major problem for public schools. Much higher proportions of students in public schools have their learning hindered by a lack of physical infrastructure and poor quality infrastructure than in private schools, especially high fee private schools. Data from the OECD's Program for Student Assessment in 2018 shows that 35% of students in Australian public schools have their learning hindered by a lack of physical infrastructure compared to 9% of students in private schools and only 4% in higher fee private schools. In addition, a further 36% of students in public schools have their learning hindered by poor quality infrastructure compared to 11% in private schools. Within the private school sector, 16% of students in lower fee schools have their learning hampered by poor infrastructure compared to only 3% in higher fee schools. However, the DGR system is not a solution to this problem because of the inequities it creates and because the capital needs of public schools are far greater than can be met through tax-deductible donations. Government at all levels should ensure adequate capital funding of public schools, especially disadvantaged public schools. Direct government funding is likely to be a much more equitable and effective mechanism for upgrading infrastructure facilities in public schools than relying on supplementary ad hoc funding through the DGR system. While school building funds are the main source of donations to private schools, these schools also operate a variety of other funds that are eligible for tax-deductible donations. They include broad function foundations, library, scholarship, arts and even staff salary funds. These funds play a similar role to building funds in private schools in that the benefits go to those associated with the school rather than provide wider community benefits. It is surprising that the Commission did not assess the role of these funds according to its principles for determining whether they provide a community benefit. It should be a task for its final report. Donations to private schools that attract a tax deductible or exemption result in less revenue collected by the Australian government through income tax, which could otherwise be used to fund core government services such as healthcare and education or fund charities directly through grants. The Commission's findings and recommendations have effectively rejected submissions by private school organisations for continued access to DGR status for school building funds. The justifications presented in these submissions are incredibly weak. Independent Schools Australia and the Association of Heads of Independent Schools submitted that independent schools should continue to have access to DGR status because donations are critical to capital development and to enhance their capacity to offer additional education resources. The National Catholic Education Commission said that the DGR status encouraged parents of Catholic school students to contribute to the school and community assets. In fact, the NCEC 
the National Catholic Education Commission wants to extend tax-deductible donations to include pastoral care and student wellbeing services. It did not provide any justification for such an extension to the DGR system. The NCEC is never bashful about pushing its snout into the taxpayer trough whenever there is an opportunity. Despite Archbishop Anthony Fisher's admission that Catholic schools have never had it so good. Private school organisations generally failed to justify their continued access to tax-deductible donations. Private school organisations see access to DGR status as an entitlement rather than based on the principle of demonstrated net community benefit and need. There will be a barrage of manufactured outrage at the Commission's recommendations by private school organisations and their political media allies. Indeed, the barrage has already begun. The National Catholic Education Commission claims the draft report is an attack on religious schools and communities. The principal of the exclusive Pimble Ladies College in Sydney said the recommendation was short-sighted and that we're not in an industry that is ridiculously well-funded. This was from a school whose income is nearly $40,000 per student, well over double the average for a New South Wales public school, and which received $10.8 million in government funding in 2022. The Shadow Education Minister Sarah Henderson claims it's a direct ideological attack on independent and faith-based schools and will devastate non-government schools despite the fact that the biggest beneficiaries are the richest schools in the country. Sky News claimed that the report would further erode Australia's Judeo-Christian values. Let's hope that the Commission stands by its findings and recommendations. Indeed, it should apply its principled approach consistently by extending them to end tax deductibility for donations to school building funds to other tax-deductible funds operated by private schools, including broad function foundations, library, scholarship, arts and other funds. Donations to these funds are all likely to be converted into private benefits and have no net community benefit. The principles adopted by the Commission apply just as much to these funds as they do to building funds and Ending DGR status only for building funds opens the possibility that some of these donations will be diverted to the other DGR funds. Back to you, Jean. Well, that was pretty meaty stuff, wasn't it, Dale? But I think it's time for a break. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual. Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Still listening to the uh, dogs program, I, I hope, and our great and fearless uh, politicians in Canberra. When there's a problem, as we all know, they set up a committee. We 
with limited terms of references and uh, they get a report and then they sit on it for a year. And that's the way it is with funding for public schools. But um, the Guardian uh, education reporter has got a very interesting take on the latest report from uh, the O'Brien Group. Uh, so we'll let Sorrel tell you all about that. Thanks, Jean. This article is written by Caitlin Cassidy, originally published in The Guardian, and is entitled Schools Funding and Reforms Panel, Five Key Takeaways. An expert panel has released its much-anticipated review into Australia's education system, which is set to inform the next five years of funding and reforms. Education ministers will now begin negotiations on the next National School Reform Agreement, NSRA, which was delayed until 2025 for the review to be conducted. Over the course of the year, the panel, chaired by Dr Lisa O'Brien, visited 92 schools, held more than 130 meetings and surveyed about 25,000 parents, teachers and students. Here are five key takeaways. Number one, fully funding public schools. More than a decade since the landmark Gonski Review recommended changes to fund Australian schools according to need, 98% of public schools remain under-resourced. That's according to the Schooling Resource Standard, SRS, the minimum baseline agreed to by governments for students to access a decent education. Just the Australian Capital Territory has reached it, and on its current trajectory, the Northern Territory never will. Equity is the centrepiece of the report, with its panel noting disadvantaged students are three times more likely to fall behind their classmates, while Australian schools also have some of the highest levels of social segregation among OECD countries. The panel said full funding to 100% of the SRS was a critical prerequisite for successful education reform, learning and well-being improvement across the country. The uneven playing field and funding shortfalls the Gonski Reviews sought to correct persist and need to be addressed, the report read. It is crucial that all governments and school systems aim to achieve 100% of the SRS for every school as soon as possible. In particular, the panel notes the special circumstances of the Northern Territory, which may require additional support. The Commonwealth has committed to work with state and territory governments to get every school to 100% of the SRS. Negotiations will now begin on when and if a target will be introduced. Number two, screening student progress. The report found too many children were falling behind in early years and failing to catch up to their peers. It has called for consistent universal screening of student progress in fundamental literacy and numeracy skills from year one, with targeted programs like small group or individual catch-up tutoring to be, offered to, to, to be offered to children failing to meet the standards. The significant proportion of students who are falling behind indicates that despite the significant efforts of systems and schools, current approaches are not providing all students with foundational literacy and numeracy skills, the report read. 
Universal screening is the most effective and cost-efficient way to ensure any student at risk of falling behind in their learning is identified early and given the help they need to catch up. The Year 1 phonics check would be rolled out to all schools by the end of 2026, with a numeracy check to follow by the end of 2028. The data would be reported nationally. Number 3 schools to act as community hubs. The role of schools as education providers would be radically expanded to better integrate with other community services under the review's recommendations. The panel found far too many students fell behind because they struggled to access supports they needed, including in allied health. It cited data suggesting students with poor mental health had more than double the number of absent days than their peers, and by year nine were up to 2.8 years behind in literacy and numeracy. Psychological distress has increased among young people over the last 10 years. In some places, there is a cluttered and fragmented landscape of supports, which can be difficult for students and families and schools to navigate, the report read. Placing well-being at the centre dedicated in-school functions like speech and occupational therapists and well-being coordinators would be offered in schools to provide referrals to counsellors and psychologists. In addition, the panel has called for a national student well-being measure to be implemented by the end of 2028, collecting data on belonging, safety, engagement and classroom disruption. Number four. Addressing Workforce Shortages The report has recommended new subject-specific roles for top teachers and learning opportunities to raise the status of the profession to reverse major workforce shortages and retain employees. The centrepiece is a new national career pathway framework to be established by the end of 2027 to recognise accreditation for courses like micro-credentials and better deploy expertise. It includes the establishment of two new subject-specific roles for teachers, including a school-based instructional specialist and a region-based master teachers, selected via a competitive process. The panel also recommended improving access to high-quality teaching resources. Many teachers do not feel adequately recognised or valued despite competitive starting salaries, the report read. Better incentives, enhanced career pathways and better employment conditions are needed to attract and retain teachers and school staff. Attrition rates are high, with around one in five beginning teachers leaving within the first three years. Despite the efforts of school systems and approved authorities, teachers feel overworked. Additionally, the panel argued more must be done to ensure the workforce was diverse, including increasing First Nations educators to address cultural safety and racism in schools. Number five, a data custodian. Too many data gaps exist in the education sector. The panel warned, particularly amongst priority equity cohorts, including students with disabilities. It's recommended wide-ranging reforms to data collection, transparency and accountability to better track students and advise the community where needs-based funding is being directed and how it's being used. There is a lack of transparency and accountability in current funding arrangements tracing back over decades, the report read.
Families and communities do not have visibility of how public funding is allocated and expended, particularly in relation to how needs-based loadings flow through schools. Our system is falling short of community expectations of transparency and limits our understandings of how investment or policy changes may impact student outcomes. To fill the gaps, an independent body would become a data custodian by the end of 2026, tasked with developing a more mature approach to governance and data sharing. Those are some very interesting takeaways. Uh, Back over to you, Jean. Well, we're going to leave um, talking about uh, funding and go to talking a bit about what actually the future is for our schools as far as curriculum and other matters are concerned. I'm sure our listeners are are aware of the biggest fake of all time, which is AI, artificial intelligence. But um, this is perhaps a new industrial revolution, some people think. And the Australian Education Union has got something to say about it. Let's hear from Andy on this. Thanks, Jean. Safety, fairness and privacy in AI. In short, teachers must navigate ethical and responsible use of artificial intelligence, AI, on a daily basis. Though AI has the potential to offer many benefits, it also presents a range of issues. And one of the key concerns raised by AI is its capacity to entrench existing biases. Teachers need to be aware of the ethical challenges in using any AI tool, says Jeannie Marie Patterson, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Centre for AI and Digital Ethics, the CADE, at University of Melbourne. These include respect for privacy and recognising the capacity for bias and error in the technology, she says. None of these are easy questions, but they are questions that are core to trust in education. They are questions about fairness, values and policy. One of the issues is the potential for AI tools to gather student data without their knowledge. The AEU's AI position statement asserts that experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic demonstrated that the business model of the major international technology companies involves entrenching their products in education systems and schools with little concern about their educational value and without transparency about the pedagogical curriculum and assessment and reporting algorithms integral to them. In 2022, global advocacy group Human Rights Watch analysed 164 ed tech products and claimed 89% of them appeared to engage in data practices that put children's rights at risk, contributing to undermining them or actively infringed on their rights. The ed tech products at least had the capacity to monitor children and often harvested data such as identity, location and classroom activities, and some installed tracking technologies that traced children outside of the virtual classroom it found. Patterson says the privacy issues are huge. If we take ChatGPT, it collects information from user prompts and then uses that information to retrain or refine the bot. That might sound bland, but it might be significant in terms of the resharing of sensitive information, intellectual property, and indeed what happens to the accuracy of the tool. If we think about social media, it's collecting information. If we think about parents posting pictures of their children, that's being reproduced and repurposed, perhaps infinitely. People sideline privacy because we can't see any harm in sharing information, she says. Patterson says stronger privacy laws are needed. We also need more discussions about the value of privacy and why the widespread hoovering up of personal information via digital technology isn't a great thing for individuals or society. Safeguarding students extends to the technology's capacity to build fakes. What we're seeing now is an explosion of digital fake. 
This might be used for scam advertising or to manipulate the political process. Horrifyingly, we're also seeing a lot of fake pornographic images and cyberbullying using fake images. This is because the capacity to create such images is increasingly available via a phone app or images scraped from social media, says Patterson. I think the e-safety commissioner is right onto that usage, but there's still a way to go. Beware of bias. Another concern raised by AI is its potential to entrench existing biases or embed new ones. The AEU submission to the House Standing Committee on Employment, Education and Training Inquiry into the use of generative artificial intelligence in the Australian education system states, Considering AI generates based on popular or dominant thinking, the risk for perpetuating stereotypes, single perspective and ultimately misinformation remains unacceptably high, especially taking into consideration perspectives on gender, non-Anglo cultures, First Nations culture, non-binary and queerness, disability, people living outside urban centres, as well as intersectional within underrepresented groups. The lack of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories and knowledge systems in the datasets mined by AI models effectively renders First Nations people invisible, perpetuating historical patterns of exclusion, writes Darug man Dr Josh Tobin. In a world where AI plays a part in everything from generating text to informing policy decisions, the dearth of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives is questionable, he says. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities possess unique cultures, languages and histories that are not accurately or sufficiently represented in mainstream digital platforms and databases. Tobin says the solution begins with acknowledging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander data sovereignty. The global Indigenous data sovereignty movement aims to impact governance and interpretation of data collected in regard to First Nations people. While there has been a long history of data collection on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, there has been little data collected for or with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, writes Professor Bronwyn Carlson, an Aboriginal woman born on Darawal country, and Wiradjuri woman Peter Richards. Many Indigenous people are concerned with how the data involved our knowledges and cultural processes is being used, says Carlson and Richards. Men in tweed coats. Says Patterson, if you ask a generative image AI to draw some pictures of academics, you'll get a whole lot of white men in tweed coats, and if you ask them to draw cleaners, you'll get a whole lot of middle-aged women of colour. That's not right at all, but it comes about because the AI is reflecting a particular segment of the internet that it has been trained on. So we need to understand how that bias occurs, where that occurs, and then be able to have the policy and value discussions about whether AI-driven representations or predictions are appropriate to be used in any particular context. Reducing bias can mean tackling structural gender imbalances in the AI workforce and the gender divide in digital and STEM skills. According to a 2019 UNESCO report, I'd blush if I could, only 12% of AI researchers and 6% of professional software developers are women. Furthermore, the AI skills gap for women in Australia sits below the OECD average. It's a gap that women in AI is aiming to close. The non-profit Do Tank, founded in 2016 by two female AI professionals in France, is working towards inclusive AI that benefits global society. It now has more than 8,000 members in 140 countries and provides training and mentoring for women in the AI industry and those wishing to become involved. Angela Kim is the Australian Ambassador and Global Chief Education Officer for Women in AI. I'm really mindful that by 2030, almost 80% of professions and jobs will be technology-related, which means if you don't prepare women now, there will be less opportunity, and that is inequity, she says. She also sees a need to support refugee, immigrant, and First Nations committees. Targeted STEM. In 2019, Women in AI partnered with Macquarie Group and IAG Group to host a school holiday AI camp for Year 9 STEM students at Cabramatta High School in Western Sydney. 
Kim says 90% of students there are immigrants. Their parents can't speak English and they work long hours. So students do housework, they look after siblings and they cook. They are bright and they love the STEM subjects. The following year, the same group of 47 girls and three boys attended more AI camps, says Kim. We ran three AI camps for four days. They learned about coding, data, digital storytelling and AI. We also brought in tech executives with refugee and immigrant backgrounds. They shared their stories and how it was challenging, but they didn't give up. Eight girls who attended the camps went on to enrol in engineering studies at the University of New South Wales. Women in AI has also worked with New South Wales universities to offer tech literacy workshops for female students, including one on responsible AI. In the US, not-for-profit organisation Equal AI is tackling unconscious bias from another angle through the development of responsible AI governance. Aware that bias can embed at each human touchpoint from data collection to testing to development and deployment, Equal AI is working with industry leaders and experts, academia and government to develop standards and tools to increase awareness and reduce bias and identify regulatory and policy solutions. It introduced a responsible AI badge certification program for senior executives, and in August it released a white paper, an insider's guide to designing and operationalising a responsible AI governance framework. Support for teachers. Patterson says students and educators need support to demystify AI, something key to Cade's work at the University of Melbourne. They don't need to be expert coders, but they need to understand enough about the technology to see where the pressure points and the worries are. That includes understanding how it might develop in the future. Kim agrees. We need to provide solid tech and data and AI literacy programs for teachers so that they can be well equipped. A lot of people complain about generative AI, like ChatGPT, and how useless it is because they have experienced incorrect answers as a result of the data being biased. But a lot of people don't know that you need to learn how to use generative AI tools correctly. How do you prompt in such a way that you can guide ChatGPT to give you the best, most appropriate answer for you? And this article was originally published in The Australian Educator, summer 2023. And back to you, Jean. Well, back from that... uh... Very interesting, perhaps dystopian future. Jeff is going to take us overseas, which is rather different to Australia, although we have a federal system like they do, and we have states, some of which are poor and some of which are wealthy. There is generally teachers are paid the same in all the states, but this isn't necessarily the case in the United States of America. And uh, of course, over there, Mr. DeSantis is trying to cause trouble with one of the big teacher unions here. So Jeff is going to tell us all about this. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And this week, I'd like to start off with an anecdote, if I might. Last week, I, by pure coincidence, bumped into an American tourist on holidays here in Australia. And she is a member of the Massachusetts State Board of Education. And because of our common interest in education, I you know, struck up a conversation about what had been going on in, in the United States vis-a-vis public education and, and such and so forth and decrying how you know, more money was needed to pay teachers and things like that. And she took me on and said, no, no, in Massachusetts, you know, we pay the average wage in Massachusetts is 116000 The unions have too much control, she said, and they pay way too much for t- school teachers. And I thought, well, maybe that's a Massachusetts thing, Massachusetts being famous for having good education standards and a lot of Ivy League universities and things like that around. In fact, you know, one of the best educated states in, in, in the United States. So I looked into it and, yeah, she's not really right. Um, the average 
wage of a, of a public school teacher in Massachusetts is only $88,903. In fact, the second highest paid in the United States, the highest average is $92,222 from in New York. Uh, so New York has the highest paid teachers in the United States. And, of course, this is from a website by called USA Facts.org Data Topics, which provides a breakdown of all the states. And it turns out it really depends on whereabouts you are in the United States as to what you get paid. So with New York at 92000 average and Massachusetts at 88000 California coming in at 87000 District of Columbia 82. But if you scroll down through the states, if you're in Mississippi, you're looking at $47,000 is the average public school teacher salary in Mississippi. So there is a very fast drop-off from those high education value states in uh, the East Coast up the north. So there's a very rapid uh, decline below 80,000 when you get to New Jersey and it heads down from there. So very much it was her perception that unions were ruining public education by paying the teachers too much. So that is interesting uh, because there's definitely a high-level campaign to spread the news in America that teacher unions are ruining education and demanding too much money. And with that, we're going to an article today that was published on January 5, 2024 by Salim Algar. It is published on social links from the New York Post. It is referring to Miami Teachers Union facing extinction as rival organisations ramp up. And the headline is, Rodden DeSantis Law Pushes United Teachers of Dade Union to Brink of Extinction. It's about what's going on in Florida as Ron DeSantis has a campaign going to destroy the unions in Florida. This article begins, A Florida law signed by Governor Ron DeSantis last May has the nation's third largest teachers union facing what was once unthinkable, extinction. United Teachers of Dade, which represents, it's D-A-D-E, that's apparently how it's pronounced, which represents... 25,000 Miami school workers has suddenly found itself scrambling for survival after nearly 50 years at the helm. This is a very real existential threat, says Alison Beatty, Director of Labor Relations at the Freedom Foundation, a conservative union watchdog. This would be a blow not just to this union, but to the influence of teachers' unions across the country. Asserting that educator unions were increasingly out of touch with their members, Ronda Sanders passed legislation that ended the practice of automatically deducting dues from paychecks. Instead, teachers who found value in their labor representation were able to send in their monies on their own. The law went further, mandating that a union must have at least 60% of its bargaining unit paying dues or face dissolution. If they don't have a majority of the teachers who are actually signing up to pay dues, it should be decertified, DeSantis said in December 2022. You shouldn't be able to continue as a zombie organisation that doesn't have the support of the people you are supposedly negotiating for. Most observers were largely dismissive of DeSantis's rhetoric at the time, arguing that his anti-union polemics pleased his base but would produce few tangible results. But one year later, the Sunshine State's largest and most powerful teachers' union is now up against the wall. The organisation failed to satisfy the 60% threshold in November, logging a contribution rate of just 56%. The anemic returns, union critics contend, were a clear reflection of member dissatisfaction. But Randy Weingarten, who heads the National American Federation of Teachers' Union, accused supporters of the legislation, including the Freedom Foundation, of hostility to public education and unions in general. Freedom Foundation, associated with Betsy DeVos and Governor DeSantis, are spending a boatload of money to union-bust union teachers of Dade in Miami because they want to destroy public education and unions, she tweeted in November. United Teachers 
uh, of data spokespersons called the, the law onerous and anti-worker. The group's president, Carla Hernandez-Matz, said it triggered intentionally created chaos that made reaching the threshold more difficult. But Beatty maintained that union members have become disillusioned with the representation for a host of reasons, from failing to address paltry salaries to overt political partisanship. Teachers' pay has become a searing issue in Florida, where educators can make as little as $50,000 a year after decades of service and struggle to pay rent, let alone support a family. Others, Beattie said, have become alienated by what they see as a blanket union promotion of progressive political ideals. They want the union out of politics altogether, she said. They don't want their union dues going one way or another. A veteran Miami teacher told The Post that she is more concerned with matters like pay, pension and working conditions than the state's culture wars. We want our union to fight for the basics, she said. We're not getting it, and people are fed up. When you're struggling to buy groceries or you have to deal with fights every 10 minutes at your schools, your focus is not on the political issue of the day. The UTD is now in a state of limbo. For it to survive, the union must first get 30% of its members to formally express interest in a new vote to determine who will be certified to represent Miami's teachers. But a new organisation has emerged to challenge its supremacy, touting itself as a staunchly apolitical alternative. UTD labour leaders used our union dues to pay high salaries for themselves and lined the pockets of politicians instead of supporting the educators they are supposed to represent, the Miami-Dade Education Coalition states on its website. As a newcomer to the scene, the Freedom Foundation-backed MDEC is only required to gather 10% of district school staffers to appear on the ballot. So as you can see, Miami and Florida is the front line of the fight to keep public education at the forefront. And just for a reference, Florida is the fourth lowest paid teacher group in, in the United States with $51,230 as the average public school teacher salary in Florida. So they're not coming from a high base in Florida, as opposed to Massachusetts, which is well paid. And there must be a reason that education in Massachusetts and California and the D.C. and Washington and Connecticut, New Jersey, Rhode Island, are doing so much better than their counterparts in the South. Anyway, with that small contribution to knowledge about the culture wars in the United States. I will return this to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. Wasn't that interesting? Now we come to the best part of the program, the positive part. There has been a little bit of a win up in New South Wales for casual teachers. The um, New South Wales Teachers Federation has managed to increase, get increases in the casual pay um, and the, and the pay scales up there. So congratulations to the New South Wales Teachers Federation. And now, of course, we go to our great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. This week's Great State School of the Week is Bright Peter 12 College. Now, here's a statement from their principal, Jean Ollie. Bright Peter 12 College is a combined primary and secondary school with an approximate student population of 435, evenly divided between primary and secondary. The college has a long and proud history, beginning in 1865 as a common school and evolving into the dynamic learning institution it is today. Every day as I enter Bright Peter 12 College, I'm reminded of my good fortune at being able to live and work in one of Australia's most beautiful places. 
Throughout the college, we are committed to providing a culture of inspiration, well-being and achievement amongst students and staff in their academic, creative, social, citizenship and sporting pursuits. Students from prep to year 12 engage in a comprehensive and rigorous curriculum designed to provide strong learning experiences in all areas of their development. As a public school in a semi-rural location, Bright Peter 12 College is constantly striving to meet and exceed the expectations of our diverse community and provide opportunities for every student to nurture a lifetime love of learning and become inspired to engage in meaningful and productive work. So, yes, um, that, there we go, Bright Peter 12 College. We've got an enrolment of uh, 539 and an X-year value a little bit above average at 1,050. That means in the upper 25% of parental income, 24% uh, of students. The second level of parental income, 29% of students. The third, 25% uh, is 29% and in the lowest quartile, 18%. So it's really a school representative of the community with 8% speaking a language other than English and no Indigenous students. Uh, the finances, we've got recurrent grants from the Australian Government of $1.9 million and the Victorian Government of $7 million. Fees and parental contributions add another 348000 and other private contributions of 203000 So per pupil, $16,841 with a capital of 492000 over three years. And back to you, Jane. Unfortunately, we've been enjoying ourselves and we hope you have, but our time is gone. From myself and all of us here, we ask you to look at our website at www.adults.info. But it's bye for now. I 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.